are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Mark 14, 32 through 52. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found again them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. One of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. Thank you so much, Heather, for reading. As I just shared with the kids, we have these final three Sundays of summer where we're going to be here at the end of the story with Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. And I think there's some great advantages to us looking at these things outside the confines of of Holy Week. For one thing, we don't have to be thinking ahead to the Easter ham or hosting people at our house and serving a big meal. And furthermore, this is the culmination of the gospel. These next three Sundays. This is really the story that should always be at the center of who we are and what we do. Even in the summer, even when we're foraying into the Old Testament for a season, even when this fall we're going to finish Romans, we get together on Sunday mornings because that's when Jesus rose from the grave. 
And so here we are looking at this story that is of first importance, says the Apostle Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. So this is of primary concern for us, that you and I can answer the question and that our kids are raised up to be able to answer the question, why did Jesus suffer and die? Why did he have to go to the cross? What happened there for you and me? And so if you're at all able, I would encourage you one way or another to be here with us these next three Sundays in Mark. And I also want to encourage you to pick up this book if you haven't finished it yet, Jesus the King. So we gave this away, one per household, around Easter Sunday as we started into the book of Mark. And maybe somewhere it's kind of gotten buried under the pile of your nightstand or set on a shelf and forgot. Maybe you got a little bit into it. But I just urge you to pick it up. Even just go to chapter 15 and read the last few chapters that will cover this part of the story. I've heard from many of you, by the way. I got a text this week from my brother-in-law saying just how impactful this book had been for him. So today we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Next week when we come back, we'll be at the cross. And then Labor Day, the last weekend of summer, we're going to be at the empty tomb at the end of Mark. So I asked the question this morning, what park has been meaningful to you? And that is because in our context, when we think of a garden... Most of us think of the patch of earth in our backyard where we might have rows of carrots and zucchini and beans or raspberries, whatever you grow. But the Garden of Gethsemane would have felt more like a park or an arboretum with groves of olive trees and space to roam and maybe even some little stone walls and pathways. Some of you are getting ready to see Gethsemane in person. To stand in this garden, and that is on our Holy Land trip in March. And there is still room to sign up, by the way. We have 31 travelers from the Y Church who will make that 10-day excursion. And you can still sign up. If the pandemic changes plans, we can't travel. It is 100% refundable, but you have to sign up by November. So do consider joining us as we go to, among many things, gather and pray together in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus spent his last night before the cross. Gethsemane, it's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is called that creatively because it's covered in olive trees. And at the time of Jesus especially, there would have been multiple orchards of olive trees on the Mount of Olives. In fact, the name Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew and Aramaic that means oil press. Because back then, in any of these orchards, they would have had an oil press station there. And the Mount of Olives, to Jesus and his disciples, was very familiar territory. It was often their little hangout space outside of Jerusalem. It gives name to the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives in just a chapter earlier, Mark 13, some of his final teaching. It is also the location from which then he was riding in on the donkey 
They left the Mount of Olives to head into town. And it's where in Acts chapter 1, Jesus will be on the Mount of Olives as he ascends back to heaven. And so the scenic, quiet spot was familiar to Jesus and his disciples. And it's probably why Judas knows exactly where to find them on this fateful night. So let's spend time this morning in the garden with Jesus. We're going to find in this story some powerful lessons and application. But I want to remind us today and in the weeks to come that this story is not primarily about us. Sometimes we get that lens when we go to Scripture. And yet the focal point here is Jesus and his relationship with the Father. And yet here's the amazing thing we discover over the years of reading Scripture and focusing on Jesus. It's in looking to him that then my life comes more into focus itself. So if I fixate on my problems and my issues and my challenges and my worries, I may miss the one who actually addresses these things and sets my life on a new course. So in Gethsemane, we're going to learn first and foremost about Jesus, who he was, who he is. And then, by application, some things about ourselves. So his suffering and our watching. His praying and our sleeping. You're going to see these things paired in the passage. His arrest and our response. And that really functions as our outline for this morning. So when Jesus arrives in Gethsemane with his disciples, there's 11 of them now, right? Judas is not with them at this point. And Jesus says, sit here while I pray. And then three disciples go on a bit further with him. So eight disciples are parked at that first station. And then Peter, James, and John go a little bit further. Now within the larger circle, we see these three that often get called the inner circle. Where Jesus has this especially close relationship to them. And he's bringing them along for a few key moments in the gospel. The raising of Jairus' daughter. Remember, he just has the three of them come into the room with him. The transfiguration is another instance in Mark chapter 9. And in that story, when you think about it, the inner three get a glimpse of Jesus' divinity. And it's in this story now they see something, the fullness of his humanity. So he calls them a little further along for one of the darkest, most difficult moments in his life. And it's going to crescendo into his cry at the cross in chapter 15. But this is where it starts. And I want you to notice, we read a lot of words there, but just look at the language that's used to paint the picture. It says he was deeply distressed and troubled, in anguish, it says in other translations. And then he says to the three, this is certainly evident just looking at Jesus, but he gives expression to it and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I know that in this room this morning, some of us have felt that way before too. Not all of us. But some here have known what it means to be overwhelmed to the point of death. So overcome with sorrow that you despair of life itself. And yet look here, we have a Savior who knows what it means to suffer. 
when we think about Jesus' life, it's important to remember that he was not just floating through on this special pass as the divine Son of God, untouched by anything that could possibly hurt him. That's not it at all. When he came to earth, he took on the full extent of human nature. A hundred percent God, so that never changes. But as of Christmas, he is also 100% human. Fully God and fully man. That's the teaching of the Bible and the witness of Scripture. So Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired or angry. Here in the garden on the night he's betrayed, Jesus was anxious and afraid and overwhelmed by sorrow. He knows what's coming. He has foretold it. He's told his disciples repeatedly what is coming. And now here it is, the eve of his arrest. And not only is he thinking ahead to the physical pain, the the flogging and a crucifixion on the cross, that would be enough. But on top of that is the mental anguish and the spiritual separation from his father. What does he cry out from the cross? Last recorded words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bears our sin. And maybe you too, you have wondered at some point in your life if God has forsaken you. Or if your soul will ever find true healing from a wound that just won't stop bleeding. We look no further than Jesus. He knows. At this point in the story, Jesus is taking those three, stepping a little further ahead, and he says to Peter, James, and John, stay here and keep watch. Now, as you read your Bible and do your devotions over the years, you will run into this theme of watchfulness all over Scripture. Not just here, but we see it in the wider teaching of Jesus as well. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus had said to these very disciples, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. He says, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. The disciples' job in Gethsemane was to keep watch. There is treachery in the air, and so they're to keep alert. Have you ever had to keep watch before? Most of us in our line of work or our background, we don't really have to do this in like the security, military sense of the word. But I bet some of us know what it's like to keep watch over a sick kid all night. Or maybe you've had to spring in and work an overnight for somebody. Or maybe you were on a road trip and you decided to drive through, keeping watch is by nature not easy because what so naturally pulls and tugs at us? Sleep. And we're going to see that in this story coming up. But the command is nevertheless the same that they are to keep watch, both for the disciples then and for you and I now. I think of words from 1 Peter 5 where Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. And then this stark imagery says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
And we do find ourselves in a spiritual battle, don't we? And so easily distracted from it. So easily, I find, I can drift off to sleep. We're numbed by the routine of our lives. We're pulled into pandemic bickering or wrapped up in our kids' schedules. Any number of things. And all the while being spiritually unarmed as dark forces sneak in to take us down. Jesus says to his disciples, keep watch. And then he does exactly that and he goes off to pray. We figure that Jesus would have been about a stone's throw away from where these three disciples are stationed. So somewhere within earshot. And now with some more privacy, Jesus falls to the ground in desperate, heart-wrenching prayer. And I wonder if somewhere in your life you've ever prayed like this. Begging. Pleading. Pounding your fist into the ground or into your bed. Psalm 42 says, My tears have been my food day and night. A lot of people think Jesus had that psalm in mind throughout Gethsemane. The normal Jewish posture of prayer, I don't know how you pray, maybe around the dinner table at home with folded hands. So every culture and places have different things. The Jewish posture of prayer was for people to stand and to pray with outstretched arms. That was normal. What happens here is not normal. But as one writer says, the intense distress that Jesus is experiencing can only be overcome by intense prayer. And so essentially he collapses on the ground. The Son of God flings himself on the ground and he calls out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic. The Father word there is Greek and it's equivalent. But no one anywhere had ever prayed to God this way before Jesus. Abba, maybe you've heard us mention over the years, is like our word for daddy or papa. And in a patriarchal culture like they were in, Abba communicated a respectful intimacy that only a son or daughter knew with their father. Abba evoked a confident trust that my daddy is near and that he's strong and that he's here to protect and care for me. And you think about it. When kids are little, what is one of their favorite activities to do with their dad? Dad throws them up in the air and catches them in his arms. And what does the child say? Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Jesus teaches us that God is not just our almighty creator, though that he certainly is, but he is also our heavenly father, our Abba. Paul writes to the Romans, the Spirit you received, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. How weird would it be if I called my dad Mr. Dixon? How strange would that be? I mean, he is. He is Mr. Dixon, but that's not the language of intimacy between a father and son. 
Jesus restores our relationship with God and he invites us, he teaches us to call him Father. Just as he calls out to him here. He says, Abba, Father. And then note exactly what he prays. He says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's so much in those three sentences. The cup, first of all, that Jesus refers to is the biblical image of suffering and judgment. The wrath of God, which Keller, in this book, explains so well in chapter 15. The chapter is called The Cup. So pick it up this week and review that chapter. The wrath of God. Jesus had asked James and John, these two brothers, in Mark 10, can you drink the cup that I am about to drink? And he's talking about his suffering and death. So here's Jesus crying out to his Father, and he's praying, note this in his prayer, with two assumptions firmly in place. First, that God is able to do anything. He responds, he acts, and he moves because of prayer. Prayer changes things. But secondly, God has a will that is to be accepted. Not bent to meet my own. And so we wrestle rightly between these two realities. For instance... God, please send healing. How many times have we prayed that? You personally or here corporately? Send healing, God. And the mature believer learns to pray with full expectation and full acceptance of whatever God's will may be. Sharon Dowd puts it so poignantly. She says, The God who wills to move the mountain does not always will to take the cup. Jesus is holding out the cup in anguish and earnestly praying, take this cup from me. Some Bibles say, remove this cup from me. And he means it. You know, this is not just for show or piety. Anything is possible to you, God. Garland's commentary points out, Prayers asking God to have a change of mind are not considered insubordinate, but actually exude trust that God listens to prayers and grants requests. So Jesus prays straight up in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me. And yet, he is trusting God even if he doesn't. Trust and obedience are two key words that we learn in prayer. What are you learning about trust and obedience these days? What is Jesus teaching you about this? One thing happens repeatedly in this passage, and that is that Jesus goes back to check in with his disciples. He's in deep anguish. He's taken along his three best friends And he goes back to check in with them. And they're standing at their post, right? I mean, they're there. They've got his back, right? No. They're sleeping at the base of an olive tree. Simon, are you asleep? 
couldn't you keep watch for one hour? And he repeats the command, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if we think back to just before this passage, if you looked at verse 29, same chapter, that's where Peter boasts, Lord, even if all the others fall away, what does he say? I won't. I'll always be here for you. And where is he now? He's asleep at his station. And back in chapter 10, that's where James and John had answered Jesus and they'd said, yes, Lord, we can drink this cup, same as you. And where are they now? Fast asleep. We know the truth of what Jesus describes here, don't we? The Spirit is willing. We say to ourselves, this is the year I'm going to get a Y membership. I'm going to go to all those classes. I'm going to be on the treadmill. I'm going to get my insurance discount. And I am going to get in shape. But the flesh has not signed up for the same membership. And so our attempt many times over is short-lived. In spiritual terms, the flesh is the foot in the door that the devil uses to distract you from God's plans, to derail you. And so Jesus urges his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And what prayer do we hear echoing in our ears? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Watch and pray. But what's the pattern that we see play out in this passage? Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping. Until finally, the third time this happens, Jesus says, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is delivered into the hands of sinners. And that is when we cue Judas. He comes with an official cohort, armed and sent by the religious leaders. So this is probably the temple guard. And the signal they're watching for is a kiss. Now you've got to jump into another culture, and there are still many of these cultures these days as well, where instead of greeting each other with a handshake or a hug, the customary greeting was a kiss on the cheek or on the hand. And it was a sign of warmth and goodwill and friendship. And here it is turned into a sign of infamy and death. And so imagine this tense scene under the canopy of trees in Gethsemane. It's lit, we know from the other accounts, by the torches and lanterns that this group has brought with them. And the disciples are all awake now. Their hearts are pounding. They're poised and ready to go. And as the men seize and arrest Jesus, a scuffle breaks out and a man's ear gets cut off. From the other gospel accounts, we have some other details we can pull in. The man with the sword was Peter. And the man missing an ear, his right ear, to be specific, was a man named Malchus. And you're reading this thinking, you know, either Peter was incredibly accurate to just get his ear, or he was a terrible shot. <laughs> In any case, Luke records 
how Jesus heals the man's ear. And Mark, Mark's always moving fast. He takes us straight to Jesus' words and he says to the group, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus, who invited children to come in close. Every day I was with you, he says, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then comes this devastating verse with just a handful of words. Then everyone deserted him and fled. That's the disciples' response. Years of training, all that Jesus had done for them, all the bravado that they had showed, and they scatter like field mice. In Mark, we have this peculiar little addition to the story, and that's this guy in a linen garment who runs away naked. Some people think it was someone known to Mark's audience who's receiving and reading this gospel. Someone who could corroborate the report and say, yeah, yeah, unfortunately that was me. I was the streaker. Others think that it may be John Mark, the writer of this gospel, recording it for Peter, that he's kind of writing in a little cameo, like Alfred Hitchcock used to appear in his movies. Whoever it was, the flight of this young man shows the desperation of the disciples. It's every man for himself, and Jesus is left on his own. And I want to read you this little poem I found this week by Frederick Knowles that describes the scene. Joy is a partnership. Grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana. Gethsemane had one. Jesus alone remains. He alone remains faithful in the face of fear and suffering. And we, who are we in this story? We are tempted to run. Here's the questions I want to leave us with. Jesus was obedient in suffering. Will I be? Jesus was watchful in waiting. Am I? Jesus was prayerful and faithful. Am I? Something I was reading this week, and I'll draw this to a close. It said this, adversity brings out the worst in us while requiring the most of us. Adversity brings out the worst in us while requiring the most of us. And those lines weren't written in any connection to current events, but boy, is that ever true in a pandemic. Pretty adverse circumstances these past two years. And it'll test what you're made of. It'll show where you place your trust, how you treat others, and if you can sufficiently stay above the fray. And then I think of the Afghani Christians who are facing a whole different level of adversity. And it's hard to parse through the reports and to know exactly what's going on. But one thing is for sure, fear is at their doorstep. And they are certainly praying, lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil.
So what temptation are you facing? What heartache? What suffering? What reason to run? Jesus does not just know what you're going through, but I want to assure you that he went to the cross to do something about it. And that, next week, is where we'll pick up the story. Let's close in prayer. Lord, how good it is that we can turn to you, we can run to you in prayer. And we on the days, Lord, can barely get ourselves out of bed. We can collapse at your feet and pour out our sorrow before you. And we thank you, Father, that you are one who knows our suffering, who in fact gave us your son to suffer for us and to defeat all the schemes of the evil one. Lord, we ask as we study your word this morning that you would teach us how to be obedient, watchful, prayerful, and faithful. Just as we pray these things for our brothers and sisters around the world. Have mercy, Lord, and lead us in your way to everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.